My guest today is David Gardner, the founder of The Motley Fool. David founded The Motley Fool with his brother, Tom Gardner, in 1993 to help the world invest and become smarter, happier, and richer, and has been picking stocks ever since. David, so glad you came on to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much, Benton. I was, I've been looking forward to this for the better part of the last week or two, and I, I really am excited about this opportunity to talk with you. Well, I appreciate it, and and this is going to be a fun conversation. So David and I met at a, a Christian ethics and work-related conference at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, known as the Wilberforce Conference, a couple of years ago, and we, we share a common love for baseball. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I, I had a short stint in the minor leagues uh, for a few years after college, and David and I began talking. And so David, I'd love for you to give a little bit of background on your connection with baseball. I think it ties into your story with The Motley Fool, as well as your family heritage as well, if I'm not mistaken. Well, thank you, Benson. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I love baseball. So after the Wilberforce Conference, when you and I just met each other for the first time, that was one of my favorite conversations in the last few years, in part because I simply asked you after we talked some about investing, you know, what do you do? And you said, well, I'm a professional baseball pitcher. And I was like, well, that's, that's not a typical answer that I hear after, you know, shit chat after a conference and to hear about your background. And all of a sudden I realized I'd watched you on ESPN pitching in the College World Series. And, and I'm, I, yeah, I love baseball. Um, and there are a lot of things I love about baseball. But I, one thing I can't say is that I was a great baseball player. I played high school ball. But Benton, to meet somebody like you, who, uh, who was a very talented double-A pitcher, I mean, rising through the ranks, was so, mu- so much fun for me. Uh, our family connection to baseball is that my grandfather on my mother's side um, borrowed some money uh, in the 1950s and bought a portion of the Washington Senators back then. And, you know, baseball was a smaller world back then. You could actually borrow some money and take a part interest in a team. He was a successful businessman in his own right. Uh, And then they became the Minnesota Twins when in 1961, the Senators moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul. And so I grew up with a family that owned part of a Major League Baseball team. And so I got to be a bat boy, spring training and uh, meet the players. And uh, we sold in 1984 when I was 18 years old. So I'm kind of graduating high school and we decided to sell. We sold to the Polad family. They still own the team. Talk about long term. Um, And I mean, my grandfather did very well, but not really, really, really well as you would have if you'd waited another decade or three to sell your team. But it was a very special part for for my youth, certainly my brother Tom, uh, a big Twins fan lifetime as well. And so, yeah, I, I, so I've seen it a little bit from the inside, but I'll close the shaggy dog answer, Benton, by saying that really one of my heroes is Bill James. And, you know, Bill James is the one who brought the scientific approach to baseball, put out hypotheses, gathered data, tested it, came up with theories. And while James was coming from the world of journalism mainly, and so was not really considered legit in the very close-knit baseball world. Eventually, as we all saw in Michael Lewis in his book, Moneyball, and in the movie we all saw, Bill James had a brief cameo, or there was a photo of Bill James in the Hollywood version. But anyway, he was the revolutionary who changed baseball. And I was a big fan of his from being a younger kid. And so I loved watching the revolution of new thinking take over the sport and make it so much smarter and better. 
So, so I see baseball from a lot of different angles. I also just see it, uh, you know, yesterday's box score. I mean, I follow every single day, always have. It's interesting that you mentioned that this or that nascent trend of sports and, and baseball in particular being data driven. And before we get into sort of the backstory of the Motley Fool, um, it, one thing that's interesting to know, I played for the Tampa Bay Rays organization. I was a part of their organization and they are probably one of the most cutting edge team, you know, in terms of data analytics. And I mean, we're talking, they would hire, you know, PhDs to measure like the angle of attack from your baseball, from the bat to the baseball, the, the, you know, just every bit of data that you could actually gather from spin rate off of your various pitches, which is, which now, uh, for people who are not really in the know on baseball, all of this data analytics stuff that was started, you know, back in the 80s, um, 70s, 80s, it is like mainstream now. So that, you know, alpha per se is is now like beta. I mean, it's like it's across the board uh, in, in um, you know, Major League Baseball. So, but I want to hit on one thing that you mentioned, the, the, the word journalism. And... I, it's interesting to me the parallel what you said about Bill James being a journalist and starting something, starting a trend. And so, in that context, maybe give a little bit of the background story of the Motley Fool being a uh, financial journalist yourself and researcher yourself, and tell us that story. Sure. Um, so I. I I will say first and foremost that the story begins with our father raising us to love the stock market. And unbeknownst to us, because we were zero when he started, he started portfolios for each of his kids. I did the same for my kids, and I bet you're doing the same for your daughter, Benton. Congratulations, 2020, a very special year for the Moss family. Yeah, actually, one of my wedding gifts to my wife was a was a very small amount in a 529 college plan. But as we'll discuss later, I'm wondering <laughs> if college is going to be around in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. So it was it was a family thing. And, you know, my father was uh, an avid investor. He was a lawyer. He was not a professional investor. He was not an economist. He probably could have been a macroeconomist. That is the love of his life. And I can talk about him in the present tense. He might be listening right now because dad is very much still with us, which has been wonderful longevity at now, you know, in his 80s. Uh, he's been such an important part of our lives. But anyway, he was an investor. He loved the stock market. And so he got us thinking about stocks in our teens. When other kids are out there playing wiffle ball, you know, we're sitting down in front of value line, which is a big black tome with a huge amount of numbers. And we're pouring over the numbers and starting to learn what net profit margin is or what return on equity is. And these are very geeky phrases if you're 13, 14, 15 years old. And then when Tom and I both went to college, respectively to UNC Chapel Hill in my case and to Brown in Tom's case, we were both English majors. So we were not investors or trying to be accountants or anything like that. It was just a, a sense that as a fellow citizen, a humanities person, yeah, we should be investors. We should be invested and we should be buying great companies. It wasn't so much about you know the market itself. And we never were coached on funds. I didn't even really know what an index fund was when I started at the age of 18. Of course, they weren't very popular back then, but it was more just, yeah, you buy part ownership in companies and you hold that over long periods of time. So it was from that standpoint that we, we began to write a newsletter that was called The Motley Fool. And that was in, as you mentioned, it was in July of 1993. 
I'm the one who pulled the name from Shakespeare. Um, my, one of my favorite professors at UNC Chapel Hill, sadly no longer with us, Daryl Glass, was my Shakespeare teacher. And I remember the fools, the court jesters, the ones who made jokes, the ones who challenged conventional wisdom. And, uh, and, and I love those characters. So when it came time to name what was just and truly just a newsletter for friends and family, usually I say our parents' friends because they were the only ones willing to pay us 48 bucks a year for our thoughts, kind of floating our early enterprise. Um, uh, you know, I love that, that position of the fool. So Tom and me and Tom's friend, Eric, co-founded it as a newsletter in July of 1993. So in a sense, we were, I guess, journalists. I certainly have never taken a single course in journalism. Uh, I, I don't think of myself as a journalist, but, but I was talking with somebody yesterday who said, you're from the media. And I was like, really? I don't think of myself that way. But I guess in some ways I'm from the media. I mean, we all, we all are, right? Here we are on your podcast, Benton. So I guess you're a journalist and you're part of the media as well, whether or not you would self-define that way. But it is certainly true that we were writers and we love the power of the written word. And that's how I was raised. And that was my, that was my education at North Carolina. And so it came time to write words about the market. And the market was, maybe we'll talk about this, but also it could be a distraction. So I'll just say things were a lot worse for investors back then across so many different dynamics. Information was very expensive. Transacting was very expensive. These things were hard to come by and uh, things were set up for Wall Street far more than they are today. And so there were a lot of words that you could write if you wanted to criticize the status quo back in the 1990s. Anyway, to fast forward, I'll just add two little bits and then pass the ball back to you. Number one is that within a few years, actually within one year, uh, the online medium was starting and AOL, which was really the, the big dog back then, um, we, we got our, our newsletter onto AOL. That was really important one year in. And then the, the thing I'll close this answer with is that inside of three years from starting a homebrew newsletter for our parents' friends, we were on the cover of Fortune magazine. And so it was this incredible rush of possibilities, energy, uh, things that I never would have expected. Uh, and that I still look back on very fondly and thinking back through uh, just how fast the internet happened in its own small way and what that meant for our little fledgling enterprise, The Motley Fool. It seems like to me, you know, a lot of things have changed since the, you know, the early 90s with the proliferation of the internet and the ease of access of instantaneous opinions and information, low transaction or no transaction costs these days with the Robin Hoods and the Schwabs and well, really the Robin Hoods blazing the trail and the Schwabs sort of following um, like, you know, like it or not, uh, it's here. And so I'd, I'd be curious to hear your perspective on how how you all have transitioned, you know, the business and how you think about where you came from, which was when the internet was just starting, information was sparse and it was really hard to get it as an individual investor to now, I can go Google Tesla 10K and go look it up just like someone in New York at a hedge fund can. So I'd be curious how you guys think about that, just given where you, you all started and, and how far you've come. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, information. I mean, this is the information age, and it really has been something that was limited supply and therefore expensive. And in half a lifetime, um, about half of my lifetime, it's transitioned, as you just pointed out, to being incredibly um, oversupplied, arguably, free, and, uh, and 
and yet for the most part, um, so helpful. I mean, uh, I'm so grateful that I can look up and see the real time stock chart of any company today when I used to pay 50 bucks a quarter for the S&P 500 chart guide, which was nothing more than a little booklet with paper printed looks at the last 12 months of graphs of stocks. That was the way to find that information and it cost money and it was printed once a quarter. So it's, it's just incredible to think about what's happened. And of course, this is not just true of investing, it's true of so many other areas of our culture. And I think it's wonderful for the most part. Yes, it does lead to fake news and fake news can affect the stock market. Um, and so there's always, with any powerful revolution or change, there are gonna be downsides to it. But boy, as you just pointed out, Benton, we didn't even talk about it, but yeah, free trades, um, fractional shares. These things, just in the last two years, have dramatically further improved the opportunity for you and me to invest and to do it well. Obviously not everyone's doing it well and a lot of people are trading, not investing. And I know I love investing, I know you do. I don't think either of us is traders. And I think of these as opposite things, by the way. Uh, I, don't, I don't think investing and trading are synonyms, they're antonyms. Uh, so, but from my standpoint, I am so delighted that I got to grow up and that you're getting to grow into this world of so much better information, so much lower barriers to investing well. No, I agree. My, my sister, who is 18 years old, my dad, similar to, to your dad, just set her up a, a Schwab account. And Great. so she's been asking me, okay, what now? What do I invest in? <laughs> and she brings me one of the only consumer brands that she knows because it's in her left hand all the time, yep. Apple. Yep. I said, okay, <laughs> why don't we go to the 10Q? So if someone came to you and asked, okay, how do I invest $2,000? How do I invest? How do I think about this? What do you tell them? And how has that really played into the Motley Fool ethos? Yeah, so I, I think that what I would say to them is, first of all, how'd you come by the $2,000? That's, that's a story. That's something to respect. If you earned it, self-respect, if somebody helped you with it, uh, write a note of gratitude. So uh, the biggest challenge to most of the world to invest is having capital, period, being net, cap real capital, not, not debt. And so um, that $2,000, that's special. All right, so, but let's not think of it as too special. We're, we're, it's okay to lose it. Uh, we're going to try not to lose it, but I, I would say we're probably going to buy 10 stocks with $2,000 and uh, we're going to buy some fractional shares. So we're not going to care about um, uh, Amazon being over $1,000 a share or Tesla, or we're going to buy fractional shares of these companies. So we're going to take away altogether this notion that the price per share of individual stocks, whether it's $6, a very low single digit number, or $6,000 a share, doesn't matter at one jot. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to find 10 companies that I think that you think if we're talking and having this conversation together, will make our portfolio reflect our best vision for the future. So we're already thinking about things that we know. Um, we might have some interest and not know that much, but think, you know what? Solar does seem like a big thing for the future. So maybe I'll look into that some. So with intellectual curiosity and that humanities mindset, we're just gonna start uh, learning. But we're also gonna be loading up that, those 10 stocks, probably the five companies we know really well. And that one that's in your left hand, or in, your, in this case, your sister's left hand is, is an excellent example of what I would be doing. So we're gonna buy equal amounts, $200 each. Uh, we're gonna start all those horses 
just before the bell goes off at the same spot, and then we're gonna let them race. And then when we save another $500, $1,000, we're probably gonna to add to the ones that are ahead, not behind, which is very contrary for a lot of people, even very experienced professional investors, let alone 18-year-olds just getting started investing. Final thing is, it's, it's, we're gonna have fun. It's, it's, a, it's an act of enthusiasm to part with money we could have spent on our immediate material benefit and say, no, we're gonna push this off to the future and we're gonna put it in things that we think are gonna help the world and are gonna win for us. And those things are not mutually exclusive. And so I think, because she's your sister, that she's getting really great coaching and probably a lot of what I said is what you've already done or how she might think about it. And, and that's maybe to close that answer, Benton, that's, that's an important point on its own. And that is that very simply, it's, it's not hard to invest well. You really, it's not a lot more than just finding companies that you admire, buying part ownership of them, and then letting that go over time and adding to the ones that seem to be thriving. We don't have, full stop, we don't have to be much more complicated than that. That last piece is is important. I was going to follow up and, and ask what, okay, so how long should I hold my companies for? Yeah, so um, what I would be trying to do is hold them for um, as long as possible. Uh, and what, what makes it possible is if the company is doing well and according with your ex expectations or hopes or sometimes exceeding them. And that's, that's the best situation of all. Now, some companies will fail us. Uh, uh, the company will fail us, right? That means that it didn't get done what it said it was going to get done. Management put out their guidance and didn't own up to it or live it for several years or maybe several quarters on end. Or some new competitive force shows up that we didn't see and blindsides us and all of a sudden that company doesn't look so good anymore. So in a sense, you could say the company failed us, but sometimes we failed the company in this sense. We misunderstood what was happening. We didn't read things right. We have an opportunity to learn from that. And so we're probably not going to add to those companies that I just described, those types of companies, and we might sell them. Uh, but I'm even okay with somebody never selling. Like with that first $2,000, it's a powerful story, potentially for your sister or anybody to say, yeah, I'm never selling these. Um, some of them will, I hope, grow to the moon and others will do poorly. And you're still, in this example, you're still holding it 27 years later and it's just a tiny fraction of what it was. But here's the good news. You were never adding to that. That's not how we invest or not how I coach investing. And so it, it becomes irrelevant as you own Amazon and it becomes a huge part of your portfolio and you, you own Podunk Inc, which unfortunately failed miserably and is worth about $10 in your portfolio. It doesn't really hold any sway over your overall returns. It becomes irrelevant. And so people who live in fear of losing um, shouldn't. But I think that's something that holds a lot of people back from investing or investing the way that I, I do as a rule breaker is they're worried about losing and really their biggest worry should be that they're not getting started winning. Mm, that's, that's great. One thing that I've always admired about you is that you are a, a true contrarian. I think in my book, I, in, in some ways, and I heard you say on one podcast that you're not so big on conventional wisdom. And in that sense, you're, you're somewhat of a contrarian. I admittedly came to investing from a very heavy, value investing background, reading the early Buffett letters and the quantitative side of it. But what I started to discover was that some of the 
best investments that he made were responsible for 90 plus percent of his net worth and his success. And that would be boiled down to maybe five or 10 ideas in a career of 50, 60, 70 years. So, and the greatest investor of all time. Exactly. And so I have admittedly eaten a lot of words that I said early on as a quote unquote value investor as I'm looking for just better companies to buy and hold. So maybe talk a little bit about how you, were you always wired to be a contrarian from the early days of The Motley Fool? So I do think that I was wired to be a contrarian. And, you know, I, I, I want to make it clear, I'm not like a bump in the log or a stick in the mud contrarian. And, and I'm, I'm always going to debate or disagree with things. No, I, I try to look at the most value we can create in our lives from a philosophical or intellectual level are when we find a few things that are high impact and realize people are thinking about them wrong and then find a better way to think about it. So we're challenging the conventional wisdom and then we go on to create value from that. So from my standpoint, um, you know, Mal uh, yeah, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called How David Beats Goliath. I read the article, I think it was in the New Yorker. You can Google it, it's for free. Uh, with that same title. I didn't go on to read the book because I think I kind of already got it. But he just points out that if you are playing the game the same way that Goliath is and Goliath is Goliath, you're going to lose because we're all Davids in the face of Goliath. And so the way, as Gladwell points out, with lots of great examples drawn from uh, military video games to um, sports the way to play the game, the way to win the game against Goliath is to play it differently fundamentally. What David did in the Bible to Goliath and what you and I could do to Wall Street in the case of the Motley Fool, how I think about it anyway, or what Bill James did in the world of baseball, you come at it from a different angle and, and win. And, and it's only going to work, by the way, if in fact you're right or some part of what you're doing is actually better than what people think. And so... Uh, so that's why when I say I'm a contrarian, it almost sounds a little bit top heavy to me. I don't walk around thinking that or saying that. and I wouldn't want people thinking that I think of myself that way. However, I, I have latched on. I, I do tend to take the other side in debates just for the fun of it. I, I don't like politics very much. When I'm in the presence of somebody who's very strong one direction or another, I can't help not starting to paint the other side of, of the floor. So I, I think that is hardwired in me. Uh, but, but I think that it, in the end, it's, it's about just coming up with a better idea. And if, if, in fact, as I said, you have a better idea, then that's where progress, innovation, and value comes from. In the early years of The Motley Fool, how did that play into this idea to start a, a paid subscription newsletter, this idea of trying to be different but right and providing value? So I think a lot of it was just our belief in the online medium at the time. We were kind of front men. Um, for the idea that this new medium, the World Wide Web, words that were um, new to much of the world at the time, would actually be something that would add value. Um, within an investment context, uh, we would get criticized for being, quotes chat rooms on the internet. And that was always made to sound, you know, by a professional journalist uh, in the financial field as if that's a very dodgy thing to be into looking at or doing. On the other hand, we were there going, uh, well, they're not really chat rooms. I mean, yeah, AOL does have chat rooms. We have forums and we've built a community of people who are using the English language to write paragraphs and paragraphs of their own analysis, looking at a 10Q and then giving, and that's just 
posted on the Motley Fool discussion boards. And then that spawns a, a conversation and exchange and a dialogue that incredibly accelerated my and many people's understanding of that company or industry or world at large. So we were champions of the medium. And in a lot of ways, that's why we were on the cover of Fortune Magazine, because we were kind of a revolution that was coming at uh, investing from a different angle, Main Street, not Wall Street, with a belief in the internet, not, um, not uh, disenchantment or criticism of it. Merrill Lynch at the time uh, put out a press release saying the internet or online trading represents the single most dangerous weapon that could be used against investors. Uh, and we were like, uh, we think it's the opposite. And so we put out a press release the next day that said, actually, um, it's probably the single most dangerous thing for Merrill Lynch, but we don't think for investors or, or the stock market. And so we had some feisty, youthful spirit there. And we were also, as David's looking at Goliath, we were happy to pick fights with giants. It probably got us a little extra publicity that we would do so, but we, we obviously really believed uh, in what we were saying. And later when regulation uh, fair disclosure came, Reg FD, right around the year 2000, and Arthur Levitt was the, the chairman of the SEC at the time, that was a regulation that proposed that public companies could not share information with one group of people or one person that it wouldn't share with everybody. And in this case, it was specifically a Wall Street analyst or behind closed doors with Wall Street. You couldn't just share it with them and not share it with all of us. By the way, a lot of us are shareholders ourselves, part owners of the company that was shielding us or hiding info from us. So happy to say we were on the right side of history on that one. And the Motley Fool community, in a lot of ways, was what made that possible. And in fact, Arthur Levitt, in one of our prouder days in the history of 28 years of the Motley Fool, came right down to our offices in Alexandria, drove across the river from Washington, D.C., and gave a spontaneous stump speech in front of all our employees and said, we got thousands. Normally, we get dozens of letters written in. We got thousands of them, and the majority were from Motley Fools. And so that's why I'm here today, said Mr. Levitt, uh, to thank you all. And um, you know, while Tom and I are obviously proud that that's part of our history, we don't take much credit for it. Uh, it was, I think it was destined to happen anyway, but I'm happy to say that we were recognizing the importance of it and it was our community and our membership uh, nationwide and increasingly worldwide that made something like that happen. That's great. And, and that, that gets us back to one of my earlier questions on just the proliferation of information. And to, just from my perusing articles and reading letters, it seemed like you really had to dig a lot harder a few decades ago for information. So information was an edge for investors. With the proliferation of the information that's out there now, how would you quantify the competitive edges or qualify what a competitive edge for, for an investor these days are when everybody can just you know, Google a 10Q or a 10K. Yeah, well, and let me first of all praise you, Benson, because you are one of the more deeply read people that I know. While you were pitching uh, minor league baseball, you were also every week putting out your blog, Circle of Competence, and, uh, and, and being a family man as well. So, so what a, a remarkable uh, uh, person of energy and intellect you are. And I know some of your background, which you don't need to brag about on your own podcast, but, uh, but you are a remarkable person in that regard. So I, I, I think that for you and for me, um, we're no longer going to be able to feel like we can get better information or faster information than anybody else, especially in an age of algorithms, computers, 
AI, fast moving information. There's no, I would say for years now, that's not been an edge or something that I would lean on. So given the proliferation of information and speed of information today, where does our edge come from? Wisdom, perspective, uh, mindset. There are a lot of aspects of human character and human psychology that we can be exemplars, that we can exhibit excellence in and separate ourselves from the vast majority of other people who are also trading in the market and all the machines that are just kind of trying to read algorithmic numbers and make decisions, but without any real perspective. And I deeply respect the potential of AI. And sometimes people are like, well, Dave, do you still need to pick stocks in an age of artificial intelligence where the computers are faster and smarter than you. And if and when they become that, I will be the first to hand my money over and say, I don't want to do this anymore because apparently the AI is going to make me far more money than I would. And so I celebrate that and I'm part of the, that now. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, put my energies elsewhere. But, but my belief is that things like um, wisdom, perspective, uh, foresight, um, connection, listening to some of the information, not all of the information. All of these things remain filters that human beings can use very effectively. Again, I'm not going to put myself out as smarter than anybody's AI. I truly um, look at AI from a place of humility and amazement in my case and, and wanting to learn more about it. But I would also say that if you've been an investor, you've been competing against AI and machines for decades now. Program trading has happened forever and so many people are trying to program their computers to make money for them automatically without having to do any work. So we as investors have been competing against the machines in ways that other industries are still trying to figure out whether that would happen or how. That's, that's a great point. I mean, Ed, Ed Thorpe was operating in the 80s, I think. The, the mathematician who wrote the book on counting cards effectively. I mean, was operating the hedge fund where he just crushed the market because he was doing all kinds of statistical arbitrage, which is obviously very competitive today. The only really super successful one that I've really studied huh. a little bit in depth was, was Renaissance Technologies, Jim Simon's fund. But besides that, I agree with you that time horizon and wisdom and the psychological, the behavioral aspects of investing of being able to hold on, that's something to me that's all, that I've always admired from my favorite investors. Um, you're obviously one of them, and I'll, I'll give an example why. Amazon and NVIDIA, two examples actually. Talk us through what it was like to hold Amazon from whatever your cost basis was. I think it was like $3 and some change. Same thing with NVIDIA. I'm an NVIDIA holder. I did not hold Amazon, um, but I wanna hear about the psychological piece behind that. Sure. Well, those are two fun stories. And I mean, they're two of the best stories because they've been such great performers. I also hold on to laggards. As I mentioned earlier, I'm happy to hold losers for long periods of time uh, because truly, uh, if they are really losers, uh, they're, they're not mattering much um, in terms of your asset allocation or driving your numbers. So, so I want to make it clear that while we're going to talk about some of the greatest stocks of our time that we have held all the way through, um, we're holding a lot of other also rands as well. But with that said, yeah, so Amazon $3.21 is my cost basis. And um, we put it right out on our website, keyword fool on AOL and fool.com on, on the World Wide Web in 1997. The stock had literally doubled the six weeks before I picked it. I was researching it and thinking about it, watching it double, which was very frustrating at the time. But now 
looking backwards, I recognize that is generally a good sign. I've tried to make that something that I don't react negatively to, but actually react positively to, because it shows that a company is probably thriving and the market is recognizing it when the stock goes up. And as stocks go up, as you well know, Benton, uh, it gives companies more possibilities. They could launch a secondary offering now and raise some money, or they could use that stock to acquire others. So there are important dynamics where stock prices are not just a vacuum and a little game like we checked the box score for a baseball game the day before. They create living, breathing new dynamics as a consequence of themselves rising or falling. There's an aspect of reflexivity. Um, and George Soros has written some about that. And I think that's worth seeing. And, you know, you've, you, and I want to make it clear, even though you're, I'm going to say approximately 30 years younger than I am, you are more widely read in this field than I am. Uh, and I know that because I've heard you in the past. I've, I, I've followed some of your circle of competence work and you just quoted Ed Thorpe and I didn't recognize Ed initially. Right. So I don't I don't have a, a huge amount of reading and background stacked up in my gray matter. And I really admire those who do. Even if I did read as widely as you, I wouldn't retain it. So that's part of the reason I don't spend that much time. I, I try to just kind of focus on the things I'm looking at. Anyway, you're asking about holding stocks over long periods of time. So Amazon three dollars and twenty one cents in 1997. It goes to ninety five uh, by the year 2000. So it's a, it's a 30 bagger and then it drops to seven. Uh, in one in 18 months, right? So we watched what was a 30 bagger. And by the way, you know, when, when I recommend stocks, other people buy them. I'm, I'm not a fund manager where I'm just doing my own um, investing or just a mom and pop investor, which is actually in a lot of ways what I am. I'm somebody that other people copy and follow. That's the business model of The Motley Fool. Tom, my brother, uh, or our analysts or advisors, and we have dozens of them now, come out and say, we like this stock here. And then other people buy it. So when other people buy Amazon at $3, it goes to 95. You can imagine I'm feeling pretty good. They're feeling pretty good. And we look like heroes at the Molly Fool. When it goes from 95 to seven, and we all experience the loss of a 30 bagger to something that is just still a double, by the way, in, a, in five, five years, which, which isn't bad, but um, talk about tasting the fruit. So, so basically, yeah, from seven, and then um, I guess, I don't follow it you know, every single day, even though I follow the markets every day. But yeah, Amazon these days is, um, well, it's about $3,200. So actually, as we're speaking, I'll quote it, it's 3286.76, which means it's a thousand bagger because we were 3.21. So it has been the best stock pick of my life. And I think part of the point of this question, and we could talk about NVIDIA as well if you want. Also, I don't want to go on too long, but I think part of it is that we held it all the way through. And, and, and it's not that we never sold uh, any of it off or gave away shares to charity. Uh, we, we did. Um, so this very public uh, portfolio that we ran in front of America on America Online, uh, we sold half of our Amazon about seven years in to fund other investments. Um, so, so it's not like we, we're sitting on the original holding that's fully intact. We're not. Uh, but but it, even, if we, even if it were, we would definitely have been selling it anyway because it would be so overrepresented. We wouldn't have any other stocks in the portfolio that matter. But that's my dream is to find companies like that and find them for our members, find them early, ahead of most, and then be holding well past most of the rest. And I can say when I saw Jeff Bezos 
a year and a half ago, I, I was in the room and I walked up to him and I said, Jeff, hey, I believe I have the second lowest cost basis of anybody in this room of thousands of people here to see you talk to the Economic Club of Washington. Of course, Jeff has the lowest, but, uh, but yeah, we have a very low cost basis, also true of NVIDIA, also true of Netflix. Without over bragging, also true of a lot of companies. And so that's a sign that we find them early, but we keep holding them well past the rest of the world. Sometimes if you can't pull the trigger because of a valuation, you may miss out. And I came to investing through the sort of the Warren Buffett camp, and he was very, very big on value early on, just valuation and not over, quote unquote, overpaying and uh, incurring a permanent loss of capital. And so another company that I'd love to discuss because I've had some interesting conversations with my family about it, don't own it, but is Tesla. You guys have been a long-term holder of Tesla since when? 2011, fall. What was the cost basis? Sure. Um, and I'll mention as I just quickly look it up, um, every stock I've ever picked, if you're a member, you can see uh, the numbers, the dates, and all the rest right there on our site. That's really important, our transparency, to share all of our good and all of our bad picks with our members. So our cost, um, November 23rd, 2011, is $31.45. It, it, it was amazing. And, and in this case, uh, it was triggered by the appearance of Elon Musk at Full HQ. So we had an amazing time when Benton Moss came to Full HQ a couple of years ago. You were willing to play a game that I'd always wanted to play. And your listeners may not know this, but I want to make sure they, they hear it from me. So Benton, who'd become a friend, I just thought, you know, Benton is a professional baseball pitcher. Guy can throw 90 miles an hour. And as a high school player I, uh, at a small prep school, I never faced anybody like that. So I thought, how much fun would it be to be able to face like a 90 mile an hour major league fastball, which is what you had and probably still have, even though you're not rocking it as much anymore. But, but, uh, and so you came to Full HQ and we set up a batting cage inside of our offices and you warmed up and you graciously threw, I'm not gonna say full speed, I am gonna say at least four fifth speed uh, to any of our employees who wanted to stand in the batter's box with a bat. Now, as, as uh, listeners can imagine, we were not swinging the bat. That probably would not have made a lot of sense. And as you could probably also imagine, Ben might've been somewhat nervous there, not wanting to hit any batters, uh, but that was such a wonderful memory that you created for many of our employees. And, and, and I'm linking that back to other great appearances that we've had at Full HQ. One of them was Elon Musk. Uh, and it was in fact, October of 2011. And he was there giving a free speech to our employees talking about Tesla, the third most shorted stock on the NASDAQ at the time. And I started going, wait, so it's Elon Musk with all his success in PayPal. And he's the third most shorted stock on the NASDAQ. There's a lot of buying interest pent up. And Tesla sounded amazing to me. I didn't have a car at the time. I since have. I think I've, I'm on my third now. So I'm a big fan of the product. And that's always been persuasive to me. But anyway, just days later, I decided that's my next Motley Fool Rule Breakers pick. I'm picking Tesla. And so that's how I can uh, date stamp it and remember the story behind it as well. So yeah, it's been a spectacular investment. I could imagine, Ben, part of the reason you're talking about it with your family is that people are just agog at what its valuation is. $373 billion market cap, and which is larger than the rest of the auto industry combined, basically, and uh, et cetera. Is that why you're talking about it? So we're not going to say that it's overvalued 
per se, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, tend, stocks tend to, they go up in a hyperbolic manner, tend to attract attention, especially from people who have never been following it. Hey, should I buy some? And my first, my first instinct is this is not stock advice. I'm not going to give you stock advice. I'm going to give you advice to go learn about the stock market first before you part, as you wisely nice. said, part ways with money that you could potentially be doing other things with. So you mentioned rule breakers and you've mentioned it several times. I want to get into your, your actual fundamental investment philosophy, the rule breaker philosophy and what, what's the common thread going through the Amazons, the NVIDIAs, the Teslas, um, and maybe some other non-tech uh, or pure tech companies that you've picked over the years from that framework. Yeah, and before we go there, and I always enjoy doing that, so let's go there, but I, I let's close the book briefly on Tesla with a fun side chapter that usually isn't told um, it, because it's such a dynamic stock that has literally gone from 250 to 2000 inside of a year. Uh, but the story that I want to tell is, you know, what we had to do to get there. Uh, because we recommended it, as I mentioned, in November of 2011. And uh, it, it, it went up three or four times the value over the next three years, which was great. It went sideways from 2014 to 2019. I'm talking about five plus years of and do you remember how the market did from 2014 to 2019? Yeah, it went up. And so if you were a Tesla shareholder and you're just looking at what the stock's doing and that's the reason that you're going to hold it or not, what the stock's doing, you probably didn't continue holding it because it was a dramatic underperformer for more than five years until very, very recently. And as you mentioned, maybe these prices are not sustainable and I'm not going to be the one who's going to spend a lot of time thinking about that because I typically just try to buy great companies and hold them over time and recognize at different points, they will be overvalued and they will be undervalued. And I'm just going to keep holding and adding to the best companies of our time. Tesla is one of them. And uh, so, so we'll see. But anyway, I did want to make sure that people know there are long periods. We're not going to go over NVIDIA because it would be somewhat redundant, but amazing stories of just holding a stock that does nothing for 10 years and then enjoying that 11th year in a way that you would never have dreamed. All right, so you asked about rule breaker investing and there are six traits that I'm looking for in stocks and then six traits that I try to exhibit as a rule breaker investor. I don't know if we wanna go chapter and verse all the way through these. I can just brush through them very fast and then we could go back over any that interest you. Is that a good way to do it? That sounds great. Awesome, so the six traits of companies that we're looking for. The first one is top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry. And of the six traits that I'm going to mention, this is probably the most important because your, your best investments held over time, the ones that are going to be career defining for you as an investor are ones that were probably first movers in important emerging industries. Again, if you're going to hold stocks as long as I do, you need to have long ramps for growth. So you want to find important emerging industries and you want to find the leaders, the top dogs and first movers. Um, second, you're looking for a competitive advantage, uh, the so-called moat, the sometimes over-talked about moat, the sometimes hard to define moat, but there's no question that competitive advantage out there in the marketplace, which can be achieved in a number of ways, which are not mutually exclusive, is so important if we're going to hold a stock for a decade or more. Um, and so third, we're looking for excellent past price appreciation. And this is one that really throws a lot of people. 
and we've already talked about it, so I don't need to go over it, but it was in retrospect, a great sign that Amazon doubled in the six weeks before I finally recommended it, which now looks like an incredibly low cost basis, but no one was talking about the valuation at the time as if it was undervalued. And it sure didn't feel great to watch it double while I was writing up my buy report. Uh, but now in retrospect, we see that's actually a great indicator. So winners win. What do winners do, Ben Moss? Winners win. Winners win. And not every single winner wins every time, but it's a great reminder. And that's why part of the reason I'm interested in doing your podcast versus other ones that I might turn down is because I think you're a winner, Ben, and you're too humble to acknowledge that. But, but you know, I think that you've demonstrated an ability to win across multiple dynamics. I know you and I are both Moorhead scholars at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So you are somebody who's scholarly and an athlete and somebody who I think is a person of character. Please don't comment on these things. I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to shame, shame you with, with my thoughts about you, but I think you're a wonderful person. And I think the more people who listen to you, the better this world is. And that's true of most of the companies that I buy. I think the more that the world listens to them, buys from them, lets them grow us and shape our culture, the better we'll be. Sure, I'm wrong sometimes, uh, uh, but it works more often than not. So strong past price appreciation, winners keep on winning is a really important dynamic that I see in life let alone the markets. Okay, the other three traits are basically we're looking for smart management and good backing. Uh, we have always preferred founder-led companies. Most of the companies that you and I, the ticker symbols that we've rocked, or the, at least the company names we've talked about during this interview, have been companies that do in fact have founders who drive them. And Reed Hastings, I haven't even mentioned him, probably my favorite CEO today, is a great example of that at Netflix. Um, strong brand is number five. Uh, and, and brand is basically one of those words like leadership that can be defined a hundred different ways. But for me, it's that I'm willing to pay more to buy that thing than that other thing. Starbucks than Maxwell House coffee, uh, an Apple iPhone than a generic smartphone. Uh, and the list goes on a Tesla instead of somebody else's electric car. It's not to say they're always superior products or they're the only choices. It's to say, what are the companies that have demonstrated a dynamic where people want their products, love their <laughs> products, huge fans, and, uh, and will pay up for that. So that's a, usually a good sign. By the way, some companies are B2B. They are not B2C. They're not selling directly to the consumer. They're selling to other businesses. But those same dynamics are in place when you decide on that partner, not that other partner. So that's such an important – that's also tied to competitive advantage, which is the second trait we talked about earlier. Finally, number six, when we're talking about six traits I'm looking for in companies – my favorite of all, it's that the company be perceived to be overvalued by mainstream financial journalists, by the world at large. People are saying that stock is so overvalued or I would never pay up. It doesn't even have earnings or whatever it is. We need to have these dynamics in place to find our best stocks. And to summarize, and then go quiet and let you speak, Benson. To summarize, if you have found the top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry, and this is a company that has a competitive advantage, a true one measured over time. And you've got strong past price appreciation. You've got excellent management and backing the VCs behind the company, a strong brand. And everybody's saying that's overvalued. They might be right in the near term. And as I bought Amazon the first time I did, it was in quotes overvalued dramatically so and went on to become the stock that everybody wished that they'd bought and held at any point, not just back in 1997, for the next few decades. And even though 
there are lots of things I love about Warren Buffett, and I believe he's the greatest investor of our time. I have often called myself at the anti-Buffett because I believe that Warren has trained an entire generation to not look at technology, not trust it, think that things are all about value versus growth investing, even though I think he exhibits a lot of uh, growth uh, characteristics himself. Anyway, he has gotten a lot of people to think that they would never buy Amazon. And we were buying it and owning it all the way through. And it's also true of Apple. And by the way, Warren owns a little bit more Apple than I do today. And it's hilarious to me near the end of his career that his largest holding driving all his returns is Apple, a stock that we have a much lower cost basis in and have held a long time. And I'm not talking about myself personally. Motley Fool members love and have owned Apple for longer than I have, but it's still a long time. So, so it's an amazing kind of narrative arc of history to see why I think rule breaker investing works and why these six traits that I first wrote in a book in 1998, I still use every single day, 22 years later, because I think they're timeless. First off, thank you for the kind words. Uh, I promise I didn't pay David to say any of these things. And so I wouldn't say you're necessarily the anti-Buffett though, because he's a big believer in competitive advantages. Um, maybe not founder-led companies, but companies whose management are well incentivized and have aligned incentives. So that could be founder-led that could all, with big, you know, a lot of skin in the game. It could also be management that has a significant portion of their net worth or has a significant portion of the company. They actually own a significant portion of it. Um, there are a couple other of those in there that I think you, you, you all would probably align on. Maybe where you, you may bifurcate in sort of philosophies would be around the valuation, and which is, but which is something that I am learning to, as you say, use wisdom to hopefully have foresight around uh, an industry or a company based on what the actual competitive dynamics look like and where it's where it's headed. Uh, as 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 someone, uh, I forget who who said it, but you have to skate to where the puck is heading not where it is right now. So that's Wayne Gretzky. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to ask that question. Where, where is the puck heading these days? What industries are you looking at? Are you interested in? Not that you have to give away all of your secret sauce here on the, on the podcast, but I'm actually curious where, where are you seeing growth these days? You know, it's, it's a, uh, first of all, it's a great question. I, I want to circle back on the Buffett point because you, you said something that I think is very important and a little bit provocative and good. So I just want to respond to that. And that is that, yeah, I, I think I and many others have learned so much from Warren Buffett and I do a weekly podcast myself and I've done it every week since July of 2015. And um, I mentioned Buffett on a regular basis and of course, praise him, praise his character. I think he's just such a wonderful man and he's taught so many people and created so much value. Uh, I'm glad that I got to walk the earth the same time that Warren Buffett did. And I've learned a huge amount from him. And I agree there's a lot of overlap. However, the people who, and I've never been to Oman, I've never read a book about Warren. But the people who do and have often looked askance at my stock picking for a few decades. <laughs> and I'm not saying they weren't right a lot of the time because part of, for me, approaching things as a venture capital mindset, I'm willing to lose and look silly and airball it from the free throw line. And you thought I was a professional. I just airballed. I didn't just miss 10 free throws. Long. I airballed eight of them. And I'm willing to look like a fool. Small F sometimes. So, so that's an important dynamic. But, but truly, I think it, it was the, the, the company selection, uh, the, the mix of what was in your portfolio. Uh, Andy Cross, who's our chief investment officer at The Fool, said to me some years ago, you know, David, I think Warren is looking for stocks that have one sure future. It's seized candies. It's Geico, 
It's going to be Seize Candies and Geico 10 years from now. And you're looking for companies that have infinite possibilities and many different futures. And I said, I think that's very astute. And I do agree with that. Um, and I also do love technology. And I feel like, I'm not going to say this is true of Warren, uh, who, whom I've only ever met once when I was 15 years old at a Washington Post shareholder meeting. Uh, we were Post shareholders and he was on the board. And I was a teenager with my dad down in the Washington Post offices here in Washington, D.C. and shook hands with Warren back then. But, you know, I, I would say that companies that create, that use technology in order to create new possibilities uh, are the kind of thing that a fair amount of his followers were warned off of or cohered around and said we would never buy Amazon, for example, and, and dozens of other kinds of stocks that, that I love. But anyway, let's go now uh, back to the question that you asked which I'm going to need to be reminded of very briefly, Benton, because I think I got lost in my Buffett commentary. No, that's a, that's a great clarification, uh, clarifying answer. But where's, where's the puck headed? Industry-wise, company-wise? Thank you. You bet. You bet. Yeah, so, so I think that a lot of people um, want us at The Motley Fool, not just me, to say, like, what's the new trend? What's the, the fad? I know that in some ways you're asking that question on behalf of all of us, and in some ways you'd understand why I don't answer it that way because I don't think about AI and go, let's go get AI stocks. And while The Motley Fool has certainly created a fair amount of content and marketing around cannabis, um, that's not ever something I bought a stock related to. So we're a very motley lot here, but you'll see a lot of what we tend to offer is what people care about at the time, what everyone's buzzing about or talking about, whether it's Tesla or cannabis. And so that's ironically, perhaps, at least for one of the co-founders, I won't speak for my brother, that's not how I think. I don't walk around going, what's the new trend? What's the stock in the trend? I'm a bottoms up, find a company. I don't screen for stocks. I just use those six traits I shared with you earlier. And I use that as my filter to look at companies. And then I find companies that I buy from because I tend to be kind of the early buyer of gadgets that end up in my closet a lot of the time and uh, don't work out, but I'm willing to try new stuff. I love to try new restaurants, see new streaming shows, the list goes on of like fan of the new, cult of the new, which is definitely true of me. So that also helps me find companies. Of course, our Motley Fool community, our active discussion boards and membership, people are always constantly going, hey, what about this stock? Have you thought about that one? So, so I have an ever flowing font of new possibilities, but I'm not lining them up based on trends. So to answer the question directly, Benton, something that I I'm a big fan of is conscious capitalism. I'm on the board of the organization. Some of your listeners will know exactly what I'm talking about. Others are hearing this frou-frou phrase wondering, well, what is that exactly? Uh, but it is the concept that business should be managed to reward all stakeholders, including society at large and or the environment, depending on what type of business we're talking about, and that that's the way to do business in a winning way. And there are great exemplars doing that every day, and yet they tend not to get the headlines. When people are looking for bleeds at leads, they're looking for bad corporate players. And in popular culture, there's a funny stat, I'm making this up, but the chances of a CEO murdering somebody in a Hollywood movie are something like 10,000 to one, it actually happening in real life, right? So, so trying to make corporations look like bad actors is a fascination for many today. I think it's misplaced, uh, but anyway, even when it's properly placed, it's a minority of players. Most companies are run by good people trying to do good work and improving our world. That's why our world has gotten so much better over the last few centuries since the Industrial Revolution, Adam Smith and capitalism lifted us all out of poverty in an amazing way. So I, my, my big trend is 
companies that are practicing that and they're in every industry and they're the ones that are going to win. And the ones that aren't practicing, that, that aren't fun to work for, like you don't want to go to your job or you hate the company as a buyer, like your, let's say this is unfair, your cable company that's regulated and doesn't really care that much about what you think about them, right? Those kinds of companies are going to lose and continue losing and might even have their losses accelerated uh, through COVID and into post-COVID. And I th think we're actually seeing some of that right now. So there, there are other trends that I look at, and this is giving short shrift to a great question, but I think conscious capitalism is maybe my most important trend I look for when I pick stocks. No, that's a, that's a great point of, I guess the way that I would think about it would be that it's, it's maybe, maybe more of the stakeholder capitalism where it's a, it's a win yeah. for the community, win for the employees, it's a win for the customers and, and the, the, the company wins when everyone wins. Exactly, which is what's really interesting to me, and this this might vague, this might veer briefly into the political realm where I spend very little time, and and uh, so I'm I'm not going to go strong on this, but I'm a fan of um, of the big tech companies, and I feel like they're getting um, invited to Congress to defend themselves, and people are saying, by the way, I never say Fang stocks. That's such a silly phrase to me. That's a whole separate rant we won't do here. But, but you know, these kinds of companies, I think, are amazing companies. I, I'm a huge Amazon fan. I think a lot of people, I think most people are. We're all buying from them, and I'm deeply grateful they're bringing things to my doorstep, especially in 2020, uh, and almost anything that I order, and pretty quickly. Uh, and that's just Amazon. I'm a huge fan of Netflix. I think it's really upended an old paradigm and made our lives better. And especially, we can't even go to theaters these days. I'm even more grateful for Netflix, right? So I admire these companies deeply. But I feel once they get to a certain size, everyone starts rooting against them, or at least the media do, and drives a lot of the thinking and headlines. So, so that's why I want to remind us of the importance of companies that create wins for everybody. And you're right, Benton. Um, it needs to be not just that you know, they do well for shareholders, although that's important too, but that, that they be companies where their employees are actively engaged and love it, right? We do this at The Motley Fool. We know that if our employees love our work, they're going to do it better. They're going to work harder and we're going to be more effective. Imagine the opposite where people are disaffected, don't care. I mean, how can you really drive value and grow something and make something beautiful with that kind of environment? So yeah, you have to have your employees engaged and your consumers loving buying from you, you not the other guy and your partners and suppliers honored to work with you, not feeling squeezed, which is generally what people do to their partners and suppliers. And so it truly is a win-win-win mentality, which is hard for a lot of us, especially, and you and I are big sports fans, there's a lot of zero-sum thinking driven by sports because there's a winner and a loser. There aren't many games where everybody wins and we go home, but guess what? That happens every single day in stakeholder capitalism. It happens every single day for the best companies in the market, and really, a lot of us are working in private companies, or we're, private sector is much bigger than the public sector. Every single day, a buyer and a seller need to meet, shake hands, and agree, whether it's the price of a house or the price of a good and go home happy that we created a win-win. That mentality is very real in our culture, but it doesn't get a lot of play in people looking for investigative journalism hit pieces, whether it's short attacks or legitimate hit pieces on bad CEOs, of which there are some who get way too much publicity. No, that's, that's great. One, I, I do want to pry a little bit in that answer though. One company that you didn't mention in the big antitrust cases was Facebook because I, I'm a big user of Google. 
I'm a big user of Amazon. I love Netflix, just as anyone else does. I can't honestly say that I'm a big user of Facebook or, or even a big fan of the only thing that I really use it for is the Facebook marketplace, which I occasionally go on to go check if I can find a used office chair, like the one that I'm sitting in, that's, that's actually aesthetically pleasing enough for me to want to buy. So I'm curious, maybe some thoughts there and maybe incorporate your famous snap test into, into those, those companies. Well, thank you. Yeah. And, and um, I, I have never used Facebook, so I'm not on Facebook. It has been a wonderful stock pick for us in Motley Fool Rule Breakers. It definitely, when we recommended it, conformed to the very six traits that I shared earlier. Um, and we won't go back through them, uh, but we first recommended it. It was July 25th of 2012. It is a nine bagger since then. Uh, it dropped a few months later. I added to it at a lower cost basis. This is right after the so-called failed IPO. That was that all the headlines enraged. Facebook was being called a failed IPO. So it drops from 29 down to 23. We recommend it again. That's an 11 bagger, right? So I want to just point out flat out, it's been an amazing company. It's grown up more than 10 times in value in a very short amount of time. Here we are just eight years later. So I think that's very admirable. And I think that Mark Zuckerberg is, is a great entrepreneur. Uh, 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 you know, he's a controversial figure, um, but I think, I, I, I look at Facebook as a success and I'm glad it's an American company. Um, I'm glad it's not a Chinese Facebook that's the Facebook for all of us. Um, with that said, I would be the first to say if you have reservations or outright dislike or even hatred of this company or any other, you know I'd be the first to say Benton, don't own the stock. And feel free to actively share your feelings as you in some senses are, of course, through your podcast with people. And, and educate them and make them clear. I, I want Facebook to be better than it's been. I think a lot of people want it to be better than it's been. And I understand that there are fake news dynamics and other things, but I've always kind of gone back to that's bad. And, you know, and we have to be a little bit distrusting of like giving away all our information for free for somebody else's ad model. And I, I'm very well aware of that. Of course, many companies do that. Uh, I think Facebook ends up being on the headlines because it's such a deep, relevant company. You wanted me to talk about snap tests, so that's how I'll end the answer. But I, I will say myself, I'm not a big Facebook fan per se. I don't even use the product. And I understand that a lot of people don't like it and smart people like you and for good reason. So I would say, um, you know, they're under the gun. I, I'm sure they're trying to do their best, I think. Uh, but if you didn't think so, I'd be the first to say, sell that stock if you own it or don't buy it. If I tell you it's a best buy now next month in Motley Fool Rule Breakers, which I'm not because I'm not actually sure what I'll pick as a best buy now of our existing companies next month in Motley Fool Rule Breakers. So the snap test is uh, something that I first wrote about in our, our book, Rule Breakers, Rule Makers in 1998. And it's basically if you snap your fingers and uh, a company that you're looking at disappeared overnight, the next day, would anyone notice? Would anyone care? Um, and you and I, the hypothesis goes, you and I are going to do a lot better as investors if we fill our portfolio with companies where everyone would notice and many would care. Or even if not everyone, some people would really care and they would be deeply sad and upset and might not have something else to go to as a legitimate alternative for that product or that service. So it's the snap test. And years later, Thanos made it a little bit more popular uh, when, you know, Marvel, he snapped his fingers and we lost half of the world. 
And so it's, it's kind of a fun visual for anyone who's a Marvel fan. And I sure am another great stock that we've bought and held for a long period of time since that first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man summer. I recommend it. We bought it. We've held it ever since. It's Disney today, of course, but um, that's been a wonderful pick. Anyway, so that's the snap test. And yeah, I, I hope, like a lot of things that I try to write about and talk about on my podcast or um, do over the years, demonstrate for, for our members, I want it to be accessible to anybody. So I hope the snap test is something you could teach your daughter once she comes of age in a few more years, she could already be understanding that concept. Anybody, nobody needs an MBA or a finance degree to understand what I consider to be fairly commonsensical thinking, but a fun metaphor that you can use to evaluate your next stock pick. That's great. For me, if Apple, Amazon, Google, snap your fingers and they're gone tomorrow, I know that my life will be in, in disarray. Yeah. And, and I, I, mine would too. And th th those of billions, not just millions, billions of others. And I guess one thing we should point out as a postscript here is that wasn't always true, right? These companies have actually earned that over long periods of time through the excellence for the most part, and they're human and they make a lot of mistakes too, uh, of their behavior. And, and I'm deeply grateful as an American that these are American companies uh, because it meant that we could buy and own them as Americans from earlier stages and, and understand them and watch them grow up. So I wanna make sure uh, that these tech titans as they get invited before Congress to defend their practices, I wanna make sure that we remember that this isn't that different from a kid that gets raised over 21 years and ends up being you know, a world beater at the age of 21. We don't turn on that kid or start saying, let's break that kid up or regulate that kid. And I also think about that from a global standpoint. Um, if we were to go after those companies you just mentioned and take them down, where does that position America in the global competitive future against other companies worldwide? If I were China, I would be a huge fan of people going after Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, etc. If I were in Europe, I would be I would be a huge fan of Americans trying to take down their best in order to make my future likely much more likely to succeed. So so I really want to make sure I paint that side of the fence because as a contrarian, I don't think that that gets said often or enough and and uh, snap test helps remind me of that. That's probably the 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 most, in my opinion, the most important point that mo that just gets lost in the in the headline media of the day to break up, you know, the modern standard oils of technology. And I, I couldn't have said it better. I 100% I agree that from a geopolitical standpoint, it's important that we have really strong technology companies because that's the new frontier for I want to say geopolitical warfare, but competitiveness. So I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, we're, we're heading close to an hour here. So I want to ask one last question before we get to the final few questions about COVID-19 and maybe besides some of the obvious trends that COVID has accelerated, have you come across maybe one or two interesting trends that maybe hasn't been as widely covered lately? You know, it's, uh, first of all, they're out there. I mean, I am quite sure, uh, and, and I bet, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you that question back right after I give my answer, because um, you might be seeing, I think you are seeing things that I'm not seeing, and that's part of what we're all trying to do. Work together with each other, find the good people, the smart people, and piece stuff together, figure it out, whether it's how to 
survive through 2020 from a human level, coronavirus, to how to find the best companies, the best stocks of the next generation. Um, so, I mean, I, I feel as if we've lived during a time where the companies that I liked pre-COVID in many cases have been recognized as leaders during COVID and have been accelerated, not just in terms of their stock prices, but yes, but their businesses. Uh, and so, so I feel as if it's not that easy to think that you're finding some hidden gems out there because I think the headlines are telling us companies like Zoom are important and these are stocks that we recommend and hold. And I'm not somebody who's gonna get worried that they're gonna all sell off this fall. Um, I'm thinking about 10 years forward and I'm seeing something like Teladoc being a very relevant company uh, 10 years from now. Or lesser known smaller companies like Peloton, whether or not it becomes a worldwide leader 10 years from now, I really like the positioning of that company. So underneath every stock pick, there are kind of assumptions about how we're gonna live and where things are headed. And you know, Teladoc and Peloton are both, we're doing it from home. And, uh, and, and I think that that's really valuable, not just in 2020, but um, I know it's been pointed out by many, uh, the world doesn't need me to point out that a lot of us are spending a lot of time driving back and forth to do work. The potential productivity gains, and I can't put a number on this, of a world that recognizes the benefits of home uh, to be more economically efficient and time efficient. And by the way, I'm really looking forward to the Motley Fool offices opening back up. I'm not somebody who wants to spend as much time as I have at home, and yet uh, external circumstances forced us to adapt and to evolve. We're still figuring it out, but you can see that some things are changing for the good that wouldn't have otherwise or being accelerated. And so underneath stock picks like Peloton, Teladoc, or Zoom, or some assumptions about where the future is headed. And, uh, and so Benton, I, I wanna ask you that question back. What do you think um, is either being missed or not played up enough? Because uh, you, you are looking at the world probably more widely than I am. Well that's, a, well, that's a good question. I would say, the first thing that I would say is I 100% agree about the acceleration of digital technology and tools to actually do our work. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot. I'm in the commercial real estate and development area. What is the future office work and culture going to feel like? Because the first initial reaction was, wow, we can all work from home forever and that's fine. Nobody will ever have to go into an office again. I don't think that's the case because the question that I ask is, okay, what's going to happen when you have to actually go out and recruit new hires, form relationships with new people, with external partners, uh, if you're going to go through an acquisition or a merger or working with, ex how do you do that over Zoom? We had a pre-existing relationship, and so we're able to have a conversation normally. It's very difficult to start that without doing it in person. I, I just, I don't see that being totally replaced. What I do see is there being a lot more flexibility in how companies work. At least that's my, my hope, because I, I do agree. I think that I think there's a lot of productivity gains to be had. And I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how, how a lot of companies and their cultures react to this. So that's that's one thing that I'm, I'm definitely interested in. And I go back and forth on and, and observing and watching especially thinking about how it's going to play out in a post like after COVID is gone and we have a vaccine. The other one that I'm really interested in, given that I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, home of the Tar Heels, who 
Unfortunately, go heels. Go heels. Go heels. Throw that out there first. Unfortunately, (laughs) I've been in the national headlines lately as one of the first colleges to shut down in-person classes. Many, many colleges are following suit now. The dominoes are falling. And I think that everyone sort of looked at each other and said, everyone knew this is coming. And so my question is, how do colleges with these brand these brand names, because they are brands, and they sell themselves not on only just an educational experience, but an experience, sports, on campus, job opportunities, the network, there's a whole package that goes along with every college. So what happens post-COVID to higher education, especially given that we've got a massive student debt I want to say problem. That's a word I don't like to use, but I really do believe it's a problem saddling a lot of kids with this amount of debt. So I think what we, what you could potentially, and you're already potentially seeing in small doses is just alternatives. What is an alternative to that look like if you're a young, ambitious founder of a company? Or maybe college just isn't the right fit for you. You need to go to a trade school or you want to just go get a job straight out of high school before you go back to college. So I think there's going to be a lot more viable options than just you're 18, you graduated high school and it's time to go to college. Mm. So that's, that's something I'm really interested in seeing how it plays out. I've thought a lot about it, but I, it's, it's murky. You know, I, I've thought for years, uh, as you know, first of all, I'm a huge fan of the internet and digital technology. And we already talked about that from the very start of our conversation. Um, but the two areas of our society that have been least disrupted and seemingly most safe from digital disruption have been higher education or the educational establishment writ large and healthcare. Think about information, healthcare information, um, just the whole system, the whole broken system. Um, and I'm really, I think, happy to say that I think COVID, unfortunately, but maybe happily, is forcing disruptions finally on these two relatively unscathed industries uh, that are going to be better looked at backwards from the future than they are right now because of the time that we're living through. So I agree with you that it is um, the student debt is a huge problem. Um, some of my favorite employees at the Motley Fool skipped college, and we just hired them straight out of high school, and they're awesome. And often they were, they were the smarter people in their classes. They were running the numbers going, you know, I could pay $200,000 or I could invest that instead starting from the age of 18 and pursue, you know, a career or passion in our case in investing. Uh, and we, we're not hiring you based on your degree. We're hiring you based on your mind. And there are many different industries that can hire you based not on your degree, but on your blank, whether it's baseball or stock market investing. And so I, I agree that um, hybrids are gonna spring up and they probably already are. I'm not gonna predict it and I don't know who wins. I just believe there's an incredibly fertile ground right now that the world desperately needs of new solutions. And I have a lot of faith in America. Don't ever short America. I think Buffett said that. Uh, I have a lot of faith in our country and our innovativeness to go ahead and figure out what that needs to look like or is gonna look like. Again, whether it's Teladoc and healthcare or some of the upstarts in education. It just, it has to happen. And it's gonna be so much better once we figure it out. Agreed, agreed. And you're starting to see companies like Apple and Google hire, uh, hire people without college degrees because they have skills in programming or some sort of IT background. So uh, yeah, I, I agree. 
Absolutely. And things like coding academies. I mean, we don't have enough coders in the world right now. And we, we have people at our company who went through coding academies. These aren't just the 18 year olds. We have maybe a couple of them. We have people who had wanted a career change at the age of 35. And they're like, you know what? Seems like the world needs more people coding. So as night school, I learned how to, how to program a computer. And, and become a software developer. And, you know, they're not necessarily steeped in lots of experience with it, but they're gamers, an important word for me. And, uh, and we hire them and they learn rapidly and they go from there. So, so there's a lot of opportunity for, I mean, adult continued education and lifelong learning. These are massively important trends that are greatly facilitated by digital technology that are in fact you know, real and will in involve education through coding academies. Because if you don't offer it at your university, someone's got to offer it cheaper uh, and faster outside the university and people will stop going in such volume to universities. I agree. Well, let's wrap up. I've got a few questions that I ask each guest at the very end. So feel free to answer how you wish and, and we'll wrap it up. Great. What personal values or beliefs are most important to you and how do they inform your day-to-day -day business? You know, I think that optimism is probably the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, it's not the most important thing in the world. It's just the first that comes to mind for me. So, um, I, I, you know, Henry Ford, whether you think you can or whether you think you cannot, you're right. Uh, I believe the world is done by the doers and the doers are generally the people who thought, yes, we can. Uh, that mentality uh, runs deep at the Motley Fool. We have about 450 employees today. I'm not going to say they're all optimists. We would be some psycho cult if all we did is hire optimists. But I believe we're highly over-indexed uh, to optimists. And uh, we have a pretty diverse culture too. But that's one thing that we probably don't try to diversify away from too much, especially when you're a, still a fledgling startup, which is how I think about us 28 years later. You know, you need to believe. You need to be positive. You need to love what you do and feel like the world's going to get better through your efforts and through the collective efforts we're all making, the world will get better. I believe by almost any data-driven analysis, the world has gotten dramatically better for decades and actually for a few centuries. I'm a big Steven Pinker Enlightenment Now fan, so I'm very persuaded it's just as true in 2020 as it was in 1920 that the world is to the optimists and that's the, the value that comes to mind for me. Uh, there are many others. The only other one I'll quickly mention is just honesty. Um, you know, I, I, I th without honesty, uh, I don't think we can make much progress. You can't be an optimist and not be honest with yourself and honest with others. I am an optimist. I try to be honest. And part of what keeps me honest is the transparent stock picking that I've done every single day, pretty much since we started The Motley Fool on August 4th of 1994 on AOL, where the very first day we picked stocks, and we're showing it all out there to our members and fans and viewers, and they're seeing exactly how we did for the best ones and the worst ones. And so you have to be honest with others about your own performance. One of the reasons I love baseball, just one of 97 different reasons, and you know this as well as anybody, Ben, is that everything is counted in baseball. I think that's incredible. If you're constantly scoring yourself, you are going to perform so much better than if you're not, but it has to be honest. It has to be the right numbers that we're looking at. And we need to be self-aware and honest about our own weaknesses as well. So those are a couple of things that come to mind, but uh, I'm a big kind of character person and values person. And so we could do an entire podcast about what your five favorites are, what mine are and have a fun interchange there. And that might've been better than whatever we just did here. <laughs> well, you're, you, uh, you're giving good, good potential fodder for, for a later discussion. So I'm going to write that down and we'll revisit that. That's great. 
What advice would you give yourself before starting out as an entrepreneur and investor in 1993? So I'm going to give myself advice that in some ways I think I was listening to. I just didn't understand it in terms of how important it was or uh, yeah, how critical. And that is that the quality of the people that you are spending time with will deeply affect your own quality of life and the value of what you do in the world. We are social creatures as human beings, extroverts or introverts. There are something like three degrees of influence. I think a lot of us know the six degrees of separation that we can connect to anybody in the world these days, especially with the internet. If you just say, if you know this person and that person, and that person, you got six degrees. Well, there are three degrees of cultural influence and personal influence as well. So oh, another way of saying it is that my wife's co-worker's cousin helped me lose weight. And I never would meet that person, but that person started to lose weight and generated awareness around that. And then that family talked about it and then it went into the workplace and then I came home and uh, I'm actually not on a weight training program myself. I'm just giving an example, but basically that's happening constantly. So the good news is that if you surround yourself with good people, it will take you to such a good place on this earth. And anybody can do that. It's not, it doesn't have to do with your gender, color, background, or anything. Some of us may have more access to excellence than others, but every single one of us can look at the best people around us and go, I want to learn from them, hang out with them more, not spend as much time hanging not out with them, with other people, right? So that's a choice that we can make and it can be intentional. And I would be hammering that home to myself as a younger person. I will say that at UNC Chapel Hill, I started to detect glimmers of that when I came in as a Moorhead Kane scholar and thought that I was pretty impressive stuff, pretty hot stuff, until I met some of my other fellow Moorhead Kane scholars in my class. And, and UNC Chapel is a much bigger school than my small prep school I went to in high school. And boy, did I discover how, how much better anything I thought I was good at other people were. And that really alienated me and upset me the first few years at UNC Chapel Hill. And then somewhere in my last couple of years and ever since, I'm like, if you can't beat them and you can't, join them. And so from day one, as we started to hire at The Motley Fool, we were hiring our fun, bright friends from college. And, and so, I, I, so I, I, I understood some of the dynamic, but it's only clearer to me now in retrospect how important who you surround yourself with is for your well-being. That's great. That's great. What person would you most like to meet who is alive today and who would you, what would you want to talk to them about? And I know you get to talk to a lot of very interesting people. So I will say that I, I do. And, um, and that's because I've sought it out and tried to create a platform for myself, uh, not just for myself, but for our employees, for people like Chris Hill at our company who interviews CEOs and wonderful people. And so a friend of mine, the fool, some years ago said, you know, David, we're all in life trying to create platforms where we can add value. And this person was saying to me at the time, feels like you figured that out. And that's what the Motley Fool is for you. Um, and of course, it's not just for me. It's for, for a lot of people, I hope. And so we're all kind of trying to create platforms that create value. And for me, the opportunity to talk to you or have you on my podcast, which if you've enjoyed our talk together, I would recommend that you Google Rule Breaker Investing Benton Moss and you'll get to hear the, the other guy on the side of the, of the microphone and, and the wonderful conversation we had just uh, less than two years ago. But, but yeah, so I would say that 
there are not that many people that I really want to meet that I feel like I haven't gotten to meet. And yet, obviously, the world is so large that um, I have touched a, a tiny percentage of it. Um, I, this is unfortunately not a great one for me because I don't walk around with my list of living or dead people that I would spend time with. Um, it, it, certainly, the type of person I love is, is Ben Franklin. Like, I, I love Ben Franklin. So he, 15th child of 17 kids, and uh, he, he dies among the richest people of his time and a beloved person who added value through everything from humor about money. He wrote Poor Richard's Almanac, which is almost a synonymous phrase with The Motley Fool, I think now in retrospect, or of course, through being a patriot um, or, um, or a genius, uh, which I certainly am not. But these are the kinds of people that I, that I really admire, kind of Renaissance people, multi-talented. Um, I mean, I, I, years ago when somebody asked me that question, I said John Lasseter, because I'm a big Pixar fan. And, uh, but the, I think that John Lasseter got in a little bit of trouble maybe, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to go there in this interview, but, but sometimes the people that I want to meet, it's not because of all of who they are, it's some aspect of them. And, uh, and I, I've always thought that Pixar is, is such a great company and brand and Pixar University influenced The Motley Fool. Um, I used to say Clark Kellogg, because uh, I've always enjoyed Clark calling college hoops. And, uh, but then I changed over to Charles Barkley because I, I found Charles even more amusing. But then we got to interview Charles on our Motley Fool radio show. And so I've done that. So, so I'll just say that the person that I should answer, I don't know yet. And I haven't heard of yet, but there are a lot of them out there. And I think going through life, always trying to find out what's the new awesome thing. That's what I do. That's, and that's great advice. And it, it highlights the fact that, you know, we all are human and, a lot of people have amazing aspects about them and yet are still human. And, yeah. and, and that's, that's a great point. All right. So let's just say you can't invest in the stock market anymore at all. Where would you like to invest? Where would you pivot to? Well, I, I think for me, um, fortunately, that's one of those false hypotheticals. And I often make jokes about those because that's not the case. So, so this is false. And I do get to invest in the stock market and you should too. And I know you do. And everybody listening, I hope does. And we should do it the right way. We should invest, which is a beautiful word that says something about putting on the home team jersey, which is what we do as sports fans. So I think sports fans can understand how properly to invest in a world where people, a lot of others trade, trade their jerseys, don't show any real resilience uh, or, or awareness or interest in the companies themselves. And so I'm always saying like, let's make sure we know how to invest. Um, but I would say clearly, if I had capital and I wasn't allowed to invest in the stock market, um, I would go right into venture capital. And I would, and whether it's my own enterprise, uh, and I've started one, I don't expect to start another, and I love it. And it's a private company 28 years later. And my brother Tom is a remarkable CEO, probably one of the most underrated CEOs in America just because of what Tom's done. But since we're a private company and we're just a medium sized company, we're not a big dog making the headlines. People are probably not as aware of the Motley Fool story. We, we haven't written a book about it. Maybe we will one day. I don't know. But anyway, um, so, so I've only ever started one company, but I would either start another one with the capital or I would invest in the one that you're starting. Um, and, and so from my standpoint, that again is the story of America. We really are a nation of entrepreneurs. Sometimes I hear that the new generation values socialism, doesn't believe as much in capitalism. I sure hope that's not true or in some ways, every youthful generation <laughs> that similar things are said, but I hope we're teaching our kids what it means to start an enterprise, take, to take risk, 
to be willing to fail and to try to create a product or service that makes the world better or maybe better than the existing products or services that we inherit as the status quo as we come of age. Because the story of entrepreneurship in America is the story of America. I think that is, to me, enterprise is one of America's core values. And so, uh, yeah, I would take my capital and I'd be investing in somebody else's startup and I wouldn't just make it one startup. I would diversify, build a portfolio. And frankly, you probably know this, Ben, we have Motley Fool Ventures. We have, we've started a venture capital fund, uh, which is a really amazing enterprise run by Olin Dusk, Douglas, our longtime former CFO who now runs Motley Fool Ventures. I'm very proud of what we do at Motley Fool Ventures. And so that's what I do. I go into venture, venture capital. That's a great way to, to wrap this up. So David, you've been really gracious with your time and I really appreciate you coming on and talking everything from investing to how you pick the people that you spend your time with and how you think about how you think about the, the arc of your career uh, at The Motley Fool. So this has been a really fun, wide-ranging discussion, and I just appreciate you coming on. Well, and fun and wide-ranging, as I knew it would be. You don't have to say I was gracious with my time or anything like that, because as I said at the start, I was really looking forward to this, and I'd be happy to do it again. Um, I love talking about these things, and I especially enjoy talking about it with people like you, Benton, who are so thoughtful and uh, who can call me out you know, and say, hey, you know, are you, are you right about that? I'm like, probably I'm not right about this or that thing. And so I'm very open to that at our, at our company. And we're a very flat company of the fool. And if you're going to call yourself the Motley Fool, you're, you're going to know your founders are fools. And you as a new employee should feel comfortable saying, I disagree with Tom or David or what they're saying or thinking. That's part of our culture too. Anyway, I, I enjoy this. And uh, congratulations on getting your podcast started, Benton. I know I'm not the first, but I'm near the start of this enterprise. I hope it does really well for you and all your work through Circle of Competence. I appreciate it. Thanks, David. We'll, we'll get another one on the books to talk about the many things that we didn't get to hit today. So let's see what happens next, but I'll just close by saying full on. Full on. Thanks, David. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, Go to circleofcompetence.co, that's circleofcompetence.co, to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.